Okay, thank you all sisters, thank you musicians. We hope that worked. We're sorry again when uh, we experienced that technical glitch, but I'm sure we're all big-hearted enough to understand these things as we go along. And so, as we begin the Easter week, the Good Friday week, we're going to meditate, reflect on God and His gift of Jesus to us. And so let's begin by asking, how, do we, how well do you know each other? How well do you know each other? And now with the shut-ins that many of us are experiencing, um, very little going out to eat, especially here in Asia, in Singapore, uh, most of us have to eat at home. And so you may discover new things about each other. The knowing of each other has expanded and deepened. And so you never knew that some people in your family could cook so well, cook instant noodles so well, and eat instant noodles so heartily. You never knew we could fry eggs. Never knew that dad could fry eggs. Never knew my brother could fry eggs and burn eggs. So through this shut-in, we discover new things about each other. Not too long ago, somebody came to my house and noticed a flower pot, quite a big one. And uh, he said, oh, it's very nice color. I said, yeah, I, I just painted it. And he was so amazed. You, you can paint? I said, yeah. When I was a student in the university, I had a summer job and I painted 49 rooms of a hostel. And he almost fell off, I'm, I'm not his chair, but fell off where he's... We, we get to know each other through different circumstances. The most important thing to ask ourselves as we come to this time, reflecting on God and His love for us in the person of Jesus, is knowing Jesus is radically different from what? We conduct many funerals here in ARPC. We see that as a tremendous ministry to help the bereaved, to hear the good news and to find new hope in Christ in Christ alone. In so many of those bereavement funeral settings that we go to, oftentimes the family, the spouse that's remaining, the children who are there would say, if only you knew my father, if only you knew my mother, if only you knew my grandpa when they were alive. The knowing of each other is when we are alive. When it comes to Jesus, we know Jesus the most, the first light comes on, by knowing his death. And we come to know Jesus' death the most by understanding Psalm 22. So what do we mean by that? This passage that we're going to look at, see, next slide. They brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them. And I've put there in brackets, this is taken from Psalm 22, verse 18. The dividing of the garments, the casting of the lots, to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And so, carries on. And the description of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews... And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. And I put in brackets, bow, Psalm 22, because that's where it comes from. And saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So, what are we hearing from God's word? What are we hearing? Very important first lessons and messages for us. When we read this, 
scene one of this passage that we are reading, Mark, the writer under God, is recording for us the scoffers and their response in Jesus' last moment leading to his death. So take a look at how it unfolds. In chapter 15, verse 22, they brought him to Golgotha. In verse 23, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. Verse 24, they crucified him and divided his garments. Verse 25, they crucified him. Verse 29, they, if you read the account again, the passerbys, as they passed by, they derided him, wagging their heads. And verse 31, the chief priests, they mocked him, and then they reviled him. When you pull all these verses together, recording the, the eyewitness of what happened in the last moments of Jesus' life, Jesus is what we call a, a done-to person. He's a done-in person. He's been done-in. He's been betrayed. He's been sold out. He's completely helpless and powerless. And yet, the claim was that he was king. Everything that's happening here in this recorded in this few verses, is what we call gospel irony. He is king, but they are making, they are mocking him because of it. So done to, done in. That means he had no power to do anything about what people were saying to him and doing to him. And when the sixth hour came, there was darkness over the whole land. Until the ninth hour, so three hours, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that comes from Psalm 22. Indeed, starts off Psalm 22. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. A few things to take note of all that's happening here, and we could call it the four moments of Jesus' last three hours. And the four moments of Jesus' last three hours, there was darkness over the land. There was his forsakenness, what he felt, completely, thoroughly abandoned or forsaken by God on the cross. Then at that moment of death, there is the openness of the temple signified by the tearing of the curtain. And then finally, in this account, the confession of who Jesus is, by not, not by a Jew, but by a non-Jew, whom we call a Gentile. So, let's explore each of this in turn. The first thing is darkness. What's the meaning of darkness? So I've been to preach in places in India, places in the Philippines. If, if you go to the Philippines and the light goes out, there's nothing wrong. It's just normal brownouts. So it means nothing. It just means the inefficiency of the power supplier. Darkness means different things to people. For teenagers or children, when the parents come into your room and say, time to sleep, they turn off the lights and turn off your gadgets. Darkness means the end of your entertainment. Darkness in the Bible has a totally different meaning. Let's take a look at it. What's happening here, darkness over the whole land, is not an eclipse. It's not simply God's disapproval. 
but actually darkness is a sign of God's judgment upon the world. In some other passages, darkness also symbolizes lamenting because of God's judgment. And here, in the words of one writer, darkness over the whole land is most likely a description of Jesus, the Son of God, drowning, engulfed, baptized in evil. Evil, evil all around us. Evil, evil all around us. The Son of God is overcome at this moment of death by Satan and his demons. They have triumphed. They have plotted for his death and they have triumphed. And so Jesus is drowning or baptized in evil, cosmic evil. That's the meaning of darkness. And then we come to the verse, the saying that we want to unpack, mainly by looking at Psalm 22 to understand its full meaning when Jesus cried out with this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We need to ask ourselves, of all the 150 Psalms recorded in the Old Testament, God's Word, why did Jesus, hanging on the cross, his mind go to that one Psalm? And most of us would have thought his mind could have gone to maybe Psalm 1, Blessed is the man, or Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But why does the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ go to Psalm 22? When we read and understand the whole Psalm, Psalm 22, it could be broken into three parts. The suffering of the righteous believer in verse 1 to 21, and then the deliverance or the vindication of the innocent believer in God, and finally, how it turns from the personal woe or suffering of that person to the global worship, not just of Israel, but of all nations. Can you say that again, Chris? How does this psalm move from the personal suffering of one person to its global blessing of all nations? And so, let's take a while to explore this, to understand the full significance of knowing Jesus truly. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? This is from Psalm 22. From the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry by day and you do not answer, and by night and I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. What's he saying from what he's experiencing? The three sides of what I call our nightmare, and by our, I mean three sides of the nightmare of a righteous believer, an innocent believer going through suffering. So a suffering believer, we shoot up an arrow prayer, a desperate prayer, and then get, guess what? We meet a silent God as if our prayers has just gone straight out and disappeared into thin air, or if you're in an enclosed space, as if we pray the prayer and it bounced right back to you. You are suffering, you are innocent, you are desperate, you pray, and you and me meet a silent God. So what's the lesson? To you they cried and were rescued. 
In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I, so the contrast, he keeps contrasting himself, they and I, but I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. And so, what's he saying? A very precious lesson. He seems to think that he's a spiritual, can we use the word, freak, an outcast. We all, as the, Isra as the nation of Israel, as God's people, as fellow Israelites, we all belong to the same God. We all have the same faith. We exercise the same obedience from that faith in God. And this person who's suffering is saying, I'm doing the same things like the average believer, the average Israelite, but I don't get the same treatment. I trust God and I get clubbed. How many of you have experienced that? You don't need to put up your hands. Many of us, if we live long enough in this world, will say, I understand what that means. So I went to pray with this person whom I knew quite well from university and she was in her final stages of cancer. And she had lived a good life. She was one of the first to teach me scripture, to open the Bible in a group, in varsity, but now stricken at the prime of her life. And as I went to visit her, it would seem that the aggressive cancer would not leave. And so she reached out and asked me, Chris, I've tried to be a good believer all these years. You know that. But why this? Has God abandoned me? Has He abandoned me forever? What do you think this sister in Christ was saying? I trusted God like the rest, like you. But you prosper and I get clubbed. You are rewarded, but I don't. Here is the plight and the pain of this person in Psalm 22. He is the spiritual outcast. Here is what we call unrewarded trust. Here is unrequited faith. I have faith in the same God, but why am I not treated like the rest of my fellow Israelite brothers and sisters? This is what we call painful humiliation and not mere embarrassment. And friends, do you know the difference between embarrassment and humiliation? So for many years, American Idol was the number one program when it first came on and year after year, in the first three to five years, we were all tuning around the world. I remember watching one episode and usually they will have an interview or a little bit of insight to the candidates thing and they asked the particular candidate, right, uh, singing in American Idol, what was the, her most embarrassing moment? And she just said, my most embarrassing moment, uh, she was a Christian, she went to church, uh, after service, she came out and saw her dad running, uh, walking in front of her because they were sitting separately in the service, dad, and then she as the youth with the youth group. And as she saw her father, she was so excited and ran up and just, as her custom, just jumped and piggyback on him. It turned out it wasn't her father. <laughs> and she didn't know where to hide her face. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That's really embarrassing. Mistaking someone to be someone you don't know, a total stranger to be someone you know. But that's quite different to humiliation. If you go to India, even today, the lowest caste among the Indians is the Dalit, the lowest caste. And I'm told, I'm reading here from my notes, there are about 140 to 150 million of them. They are deprived and cut off from normal jobs. And the only job they can take up 
in many villages, poor villages in India, even today, is to be an excrement collector. Because they have no flush toilets, people excrete on the floors. Every house has a hole in a wall. And the Dalits, the lowest caste, go around scooping human excrement with a wooden scoop. And then they carry them in baskets where they are actually forced to carry them in baskets on their heads. Why? As a reminder that you are born into this caste and that is fated because you must have done something bad in your previous life. So you're constantly reminded if you belong to that group. You are social outcast. You are paria. You are a freak. This is the treatment you deserve. That, my friends, is not embarrassment. A light-hearted embarrassment. That, my friends, is painful humiliation. Psalm 22 does not speak about the mere embarrassment of this believer in life, but the painful humiliation of this believer. Why? Because he's doing the same things of faith and obedience, but he's not getting the same response from God. And then he goes on in that psalm, Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me, they have pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones, they stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sounds familiar? Sounds familiar? I drew your attention to it. That is quoted in Mark chapter 15. And here the writer is speaking not simply of the hostility of men towards him, but the brutality of men towards him. Because the three animals that he chose, bulls, lions, and dogs, and these are not our pet dogs from the chihuahuas to the, the little dogs that we keep. These are a pack of wild dogs. If we meet a pack of wild dogs in the wild, in the wilderness, you will never get close to them. And so he speaks of the hostility and brutality of men behaving like animals, behaving like beasts. And friends, the world that we live in, even experienced among God's people because of our fallenness and our sinfulness, we do, we are made in God's image, but we do behave worse than animals at times, towards at times towards each other, or a lot of times. We are worse than we ever thought. And so years and years ago, I read of this account, and what was it? Of Michael Bogan in, in Australia, 15-year-old. And um, he was out and some friends came along and gave him a golf ball, and so he, he took the golf ball and, and after a little while, he saw smoke coming out of it, and after a little while, it just exploded, a massive boom. Then I read his actual words. I couldn't see for about two, three seconds. I couldn't hear for that time. And then I look at my hands, and he describes seeing skin hanging from his arms. And tell me this is a dream. Tell me this is a dream. This is not happening. Because it was a homemade little bomb that his friends, not his friends, Michael Bogan is autistic. And he's been the victim of bullying again and again. 
but this was the worst episode of bullying. They handed him something that exploded, and so he got holes in his legs right down to his bones. With ball bearings, he's got shrapnel wounds in his arms. So he's maimed for life. Simply because, simply because a group of boys think that it's a joke. It's a joke to behave like this. This is us. We are men and women made in God's image, but at times, or a lot of times, we behave like animals and beasts. And that's God's description of us, living outside His presence, living against His purposes. And we just read that in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, didn't we? What do we read? That when God looked at humanity during Noah's generation, He saw that the inclinations of our heart was only evil all the time. And so, bulls, lions, dogs, description of men behaving badly like animals. And applied to Jesus, no psalm of the Old Testament, of the 150 psalm, is used more to reflect on the last moments of Jesus' suffering leading up to his death. So men behaving like beasts leading up to the cross, verse 43, chapter 14, verse 43, Judas, a hand-picked disciple by Jesus, betrays Jesus with a kiss. That's enough to churn your stomach and traumatize you for life. In 1466, Peter denies Jesus when he had said three times, I will, uh, when he had said, I will never deny you, and Jesus told him three times, you will. You will deny me. And then as we read to begin our time in chapter 15, they crucified him, they crucified him, the passerbys derided him, wagging their heads, and the chief priests. And so each person and each group, they should have recognised that, hey, this man, his words and his works, this small-time rabbi, his words and his works must point that he has come from God, either as prophet, prophet, or priest, or king. He's actually all three. But instead, they so lightheartedly dismiss him. So Jesus is the ultimate righteous sufferer, suffering man's inhumanity to him, beginning with God's people, Israel, God's nation, Israel, responding to God's Son. And that is why Psalm 22 is the proper and apt psalm for this. And all that behaviour comes from our self-interest, like Judas, thinking that as he looked at Jesus, no, 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 I don't think this rabbi that I'm following, he's going to bring us freedom Freedom by political power, freedom by military power against Rome who has conquered us. Or self-importance like the priests. If we allow his popularity to be bigger than my, our popularity, where will we be? Or self-sufficient like Peter, don't the rest deny you, I will never deny you. And it's all about us. We are worse than we ever thought. And because of this, we are very capable, we are very capable, they were very capable of betraying the person who came along and did no harm to them, beginning with Judas, the disciple, and to Peter. Jesus just came 
and kept preaching about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. And this is the only way to enter the kingdom of God. And this is the only way to be the people of God. This is the only way to experience love and truth and peace. But we will not believe it. And so, last year we went to Japan and we went to Hiroshima. I've said this before and what struck me, I, I always wanted to go to Hiroshima just to see what happened there in World War II that the first atomic bombs were dropped at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And it was those two bombings that ended the war here in the Pacific. And what do we read? It's too small there, but let me try to read it in my notes. Can you see? It hurts. It hurts. Hot. Give me water. Help, mother. I don't want to die. These are all those who were affected, inflicted, Skins burning away from the atomic heat. And so, each one of them expressing, please help, please help. And as you walk through that war memorial in Hiroshima, you would see photos like this. I do not know whether it's clear enough on your screens. When we go to war with each other as nations, this is what we are capable of doing. And I know... Many of all ages are tuning in. But this is the message of God, and this is the message of God through His Son and what Jesus suffered on the cross. And what was Jesus suffering on the cross? All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him, for He delights in Him. Jesus utmost suffering was not simply that he was mocked and derided by men, but he was forsaken, abandoned by God. So you could say that Psalm 23 is the Lord is my shepherd, but Psalm 22, you could give a title to it and it would be God is not my shepherd. Because as I walk through this suffering, I declare my innocence, I, de I don't declare my sinlessness, beginning with the writer who wrote this, but Jesus, it is totally true. The Lord is not my shepherd. So how does it end? Recorded for us in Mark 15. We switch back. If we read in Mark's Gospel, in chapter 1, verse 11, at the Jordan, where Jesus is baptised to begin His public ministry, the Father spoke, and the Father declares his delight in his son. This is my son whom I love. And that itself is a promise, a promise from Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. Two verses. But by the time we get to the last days and moments of Jesus' life, he's now at Golgotha. At Golgotha, the son cries, not because he is the heart, he is the apple of God's eye, but because he's experiencing, truly experiencing, that he's been forgotten, forsaken, abandoned by none other, by none other than his own father. And where? Abandoned where? At the cross. I think through COVID-19, we don't need to remind ourselves of being abandoned or being stuck somewhere. Our government has to spend, like many governments around the world, bringing back as many Singaporean citizens 
so that they will not be stuck in Europe, the epicenter of this. They will not be stuck studying overseas. We'd rather have them back. It's terrible to be abandoned and forsaken if you're ever in trouble. But you could not match, and we cannot match, being forgotten, forsaken on the cross like the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and then he breathed his last. And we need to ask some more important questions before we head to the end and draw the conclusions. Was Jesus' life taken or was his life given for us? And we have to be quite careful because in Simon Bobbill passages itself, we say they killed him. That's right. But notice it is Jesus who uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. He chose his last moment. And this is but a fulfillment of Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus' death, being wrongly accused, having an unjust trial, now wrongly beaten, and soon wrongly crucified, now wrongly crucified. You could say, you look at this man and say, man, in legal terms, it's a death by misadventure. He just said the wrong thing and did the wrong thing and was at the wrong place at the wrong time. This is death by misadventure. No, he was a servant unto death. And that's why we call him now the servant king 2,000 years later because we are saved by the servant-heartedness and humility of Jesus that cancels our pride, that kills our relationship with God and kills our relationship with each other. And the significance of Jesus' death in the actual events, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So all of us should know this well. You've got curtains in your home. If you ever want to tear curtains, and we're not suggesting this as a response to cabin fever, to tear your curtains, you tear your curtains, you have to tear them from the bottom. The top is too high for you to go to. And in the temple, it was so, you could not reach it. And this is to say that it is God who tore the curtain from top to bottom, signifying that the old way of worshipping God, a set place, a set mountain, a set temple, the temple in Jerusalem, that whole system was temporary, leading to the permanent and full worship of God, now open through the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross for us. Living out, experiencing Psalm 22, the suffering of a righteous believer. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. What are you very used to doing in your life? What are you very used to doing in your work? A centurion was very used to at least two things. He was very used to arresting people under the authority of Caesar. He was very used to watching the crucifixion of criminals against Rome, terrorists against Rome, people who rebel against Rome. He would have seen hundreds, I do not know, would he have seen thousands, but he had never seen a man beaten, 
tried, beaten, go on the cross, nail above his wrist, one foot over the other, and die the way Jesus died. The purity, the innocence, the power, the meekness, not to say anything in reply. And it is him who says, truly, I've seen so many, but I've never seen a man die like this. Truly, this is the Son of God. The spiritual significance of this is mighty because when we read Mark's Gospel, it begins, as we said just then, with God affirming Jesus as His Son who has come to do His will. And then Mark's Gospel is going to end, as we read now, with not an Israelite, not a Jew, not one of God's priests, high priests, chief priests, not one of God's, not one of the Pharisees, but it ends with a Gentile confessing Jesus as the Son of God. And so the significance is this good news from God fulfilled in His Son will go from one nation to all nations. And Mark ends the gospel there by saying the first person who pronounced that, the first person who believed that was actually a non-Jew. Psalm 22 ends in a very strange way, so like a camera, I flip you back to Psalm 22 because I say to you, it is the full understanding of Psalm 22 that will lead us to a true understanding of Jesus. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of, of where? Of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and He rules over the nations. By the time you arrive at verse 27, is no longer the suffering of the righteous believer. It's now the rescue, the vindication of the righteous believer. And so he goes from his personal pain and plight and his woe to being able to lead not just Israel into the worship of God by his death, but to lead all nations to the worship of God. How? By his death that absorbs God's wrath, forgives us of sin, and declares us to be people beloved by God. And that is why we say again, that until you know Psalm 22, you won't understand Jesus' death. And until you understand Jesus' death, you'll never know, truly know who Jesus is. And if we don't know who Jesus is, truly know who He is, we will never be assured of our salvation. So, we are worse than we ever thought. Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of men, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from where? come from within and they defile a person. And this is found where? This is recorded for us where? In Mark chapter 7, when Jesus said to, to his nation, you think you are defiled by eating with unwashed or uncleansed um, utensils, but I say to you, it's not those things that make you unclean. It is your heart 
which is corrupted. So when we do not confess that it all comes from my fallen heart, my sinful heart, when we belittle sin, we will belittle our need for our Saviour who came in an undying love in fulfilment of Psalm 22, hung, dying, bleeding on the cross for you and me. So I want to ask us, how are we coping with cabin fever? Honestly, you want to ask each other as you listen to this live stream, wherever you are, whichever country, beginning with us here in Singapore, Malaysia, are your loved ones inspiring or irritating? And your answer is, please don't give the answer, especially if your loved ones are beside you. Dad, you're so irritating. Mom, you're so frustrating. Are your loved ones fun or frustrating? Are your loved ones still, are you in love with them or at war with them? And here in Singapore, we just tighten it. We've got one more month to go, one full month to go, and we do not know. We've got to pray for the mercy and the grace and the love and the power of God to bring us out of this. So, this was sent to me by one of my DG groups of, of, of the son. And that night, he just prayed the prayer that the mother thought was so stunning. She sent it to us. Mommy, God protects us. I think by that, he meant God does a very good job of protecting us. And I pray that we don't make God sad. Have you ever prayed the prayer of a child like this? That from the time you wake, you are intent by the grace of God not to grieve him, not to sadden him. But so many of us just march off into the day frustrating each other, irritating each other, angering each other, triggering each other, whatever terms you want to use. So here's a cabin fever quiz. God does such a good job of saving us, such a good job of forgiving us, such a good job of providing for us, protecting us. We do such a good job of harming others, hurting others. And do you know that we are always putting our marriages on the rocks. We are always putting our relationships with our children on the rocks. We are the ones bringing risks and danger and harm to our own hearts. You know why? Because it's Mark chapter 7. Out of a man's heart come all sorts of evil. So cabin fever is not the cause or the source of our frustration, irritation or sinfulness. Cabin fever is but the occasion for it. It is the trigger for it. It's very important we get this right. It's not the source or the cause. And so we find ourselves living in, in small quarters with our loved ones and say, I thought I'll be able to love my wife, my husband, my father, my mother, my children, but I can't. Yes, I cannot. Oh, help me, God. So somebody send this. No movies, no concerts, no sporting events, no restaurants, no social gatherings, limited workload, limited study load now in Singapore. Now that I've cleared your schedule, can we talk? We always say to God, in the business of life, from the New Yorks of the world to the Singapores of this world, if God gave me time, right, then all things will be right. Well, God is giving us lots of time. And lots of time shut in with each other. Time is not the great healer. It is not. And we've got to get this right. And God wants you to get this right. Why is it that you find yourself totally incapable of loving the people now that God has freed up your entire calendar 
to love him and to love each other. So safe distancing. So I went for a walk very early on and uh, in the last week and then I saw in a park, boom, crosses everywhere, the no sign everywhere. Not too far from this, I took this selfie and I walked maybe 20, 30 meters, bang, and there was four to five domestic helpers walking the dogs, uh, not their dogs, but their owner's dogs, and guess what? They were all sitting on the crosses. So I just passed them quite quickly and said, you're not supposed to sit there. And they, guess what was their response? We know. Isn't that amazing? We know. When my son was very young, right, he was always affected by smoke, cigarette smoke. And so, uh, wherever we went, public places, shopping malls, there'll be signs, no smoking. And then when he sees people puffing, he'll turn to me in his young innocence and say, Daddy, is it because they cannot read? <laughs> my standard answer is, they can read. They will not read. They will not obey. And so, safe distancing. The worst side of us is that, not that we cannot read the signs, we will not obey the signs. There is enough food. The government has told us this. But still, there was panic buying. And as the, the ministers were speaking yesterday and giving the things, we were getting messages, which branch has shut down, which branch has totally shut down because the crowds were too much. The government says, minimize contact. Right? And we ask, how many? The point is not how many. The point is, please, this thing spreads by physical human interaction. Can, you, can we help each other? So the best of us, you have seen this all around the world, and our healthcare workers at the last line of defence say, you stay home, we stay here, and together we can help each other do this. And every time I watch that, it still stirs my heart. No, they're holding it. I'm, I'm working 10-hour days. I'm working 12-hour shifts. Every single person, every single patient I treat, Potentially, I could be infected and my life's on the line. Do you know what that means? So please don't, please don't ask each other how, how many packs can go out, how many packs can come here. And even as we do this recording, we are doing it with as few people as possible. So we apologize for the technical glitch. So do your part for our last line of defense. So the best of us, and somebody sent this to, to us, they are watching this, right? The live stream. And guess what? The sun is taking notes as we go along. Isn't that a good way to spend our time? That we are shut in, but we know, I mean, father, son, parent, children, wonderful experience of home church. Never had so much time. Why don't you, after this, spend time just flipping out? There are a few things we want to do in the next week. We prepared a seven-day prayer diary to overcome covid and we posted it on our Facebook, sent it around. And the first day we pray for governments, the second day we pray for all those who are working flat out for us, for healthcare workers, for our contact tracers, for our civil servants, thinking up policies and not resting and how to trick them as this goes along. And then please, please pray day by day for every single group of people. Last but not least, ARPC's Mental Wellness Ministry, the Q&A, and our English Presbytery. Easter sermons. This is about knowing Jesus' death and our new life. For when we know Him truly, we will go forth and live a life truly for Him. And so I pray that beginning with this week, after you hear this message, after you read the Gospel, 
Why don't we do this? An acronym CRY? If we know Jesus truly, we will spend our life confessing our sin that out of our hearts come all sorts of evil and I'm totally unable to love the people I'm supposed to love. Oh, help me, God. Then repent of any self-rescue, of any self-justification when we fail to be loving and yield completely to Jesus. This time is a time, a proper time for us to be embarking as we head towards Good Friday and then by next Sunday, Easter Sunday. This is what it means to truly know Jesus in our life. Let us pray. Forgive us if we presume to know you, but actually have a mistaken understanding of who you truly are. When we ourselves have not started at first base, confessing our utmost sinfulness that each and all of us, though men and women made in your image, in our fallenness and our sinfulness, in so much of life from morning to night, instead of behaving like men and women made in your image, we behave badly, no better than bees and animals. In our self-righteousness, in our selfishness, and willing to hurt and harm each other. And so as we confess that, especially in this Lent season, leading up to Good Friday and Easter, I want to pray for all who have perhaps heard this message and understood it fully for the first time, that we are unable to rescue ourselves. And so we not just want to confess that we are sinners, but repent of any possibility of helping ourselves out of this problem. For it is our hearts which are like this. And so we thank you that in your unchanging love, you have given us your Son, that by his suffering and by his death and resurrection, we alone are given a new beginning and made the children of God. So teach us the delight of yielding to Jesus completely as we ponder the power of the cross. Amen.